Okay, welcome to the next episode of Break Magazine Podcast. This one is uh, pre-recorded. It's a Saturday lunchtime now, but you'll be listening to this on a, a Thursday evening. So I hope you have a beer in your hand. This episode, we are going to talk about the subject of getting into rally racing. Now, I think for anyone who likes bikes and who likes to explore, at some point, you're probably going to get your eye caught by a rally in some description. It's that kind of, they're, for me, they're that combination of everything that's great about adventure motorcycling, but you also get to go a little bit faster, take a few more chances, test yourself, test your physical capability in probably a way that is different to when you just adventure ride so that whole thing of getting to explore and travel and to find your own way there and push yourself with a little bit of competition is like it's just an incredible thing now with that navigation and the bikes and the paperwork and everything that goes along with rallies they're also for me the most complicated form of dirt bike racing i don't think there's anything kind of close to that when you go racing in a local environment you do an enduro or motocross they're much more straightforward so to unpack it a little bit i've invited my dad Cy Pavey to talk about the process of starting your first rally and getting to the finish line he's the lead instructor of off-road skills that's bmw's official training course in the uk it's one of the biggest training courses in the world but i think more importantly for this subject he's best known for rally racing He's done 10 Dakar rallies and finished eight of them, but also done infinite amounts of other rallies along the way, small rallies across Europe and North Africa and a few other obscure ones from the early 90s. And that's when I think his journey with rally racing really started was kind of a long time before they became as popular as they are today and there was as much choice as there is today. So welcome to episode uh, episode seven and welcome dad i hope you have a coffee i hope everyone watching has a beer before we dive into the nitty-gritty of this subject let's start with a little bit of your background where your journey with rally started yeah okay so like like you said kind of well actually even back in the 80s um there, there was a little bit of a uh, an era there where rallies started to kind of emerge as a, a popular thing and there was a lot of these small rallies like there are again now and um, what happened with me was I was doing a lot of enduro state championships and uh, East Coast championships, as it was then in, in Oz. Um, but I got involved with a guy called Jeff Eldridge, who was then the editor of Australasian Dirt Bike Magazine, which was the biggest magazine in off-road in Oz. And, uh, and he always kind of flagged up doing the unique one-off adventurous events, really, um, like in Australia, Fink Desert Race, and there was a two-day enduro right up on the tip of Cape York called the Croc Run, and um, kind of real unique one-off events rather than the, the sort of week-in, week-out state titles. And they always involved quite an adventure to get to them, really, as much as the, the race itself. And then, um, and then uh, like I said, a couple of these sort of uh, smaller rallies, you know, started to crop up. And there was one on a Pacific island called uh, uh, New Caledonia. It was a, um, originally a French territory uh, right in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, New Mia is the, the kind of famous city there. It was kind of Club Med place back in the day. And they decided to run a, a rally. It was a, 
I think I can't remember exactly, but like a, a five or six day event right around the whole um, main island, and then by boat over to a little island, and it was just that that whole adventure thing. Really, uh, it was the first time I did anything with a road book, but for sure it was, um, you know, it was a massive adventure, especially as a young lad to kind of first time leaving Australia and you know air freighting the bikes and. Uh, kind of all the, like you said, all the complexity that went with it. It wasn't just the riding event; it was the the whole experience of you know. It was the first time I had a I had to get a carnet, and first time I got a passport, and all all this stuff kind of built into yeah this massive adventure really. And uh, you know, going somewhere where they spoke a different language and everything was different. Everything was new and exciting. So. Um, yeah, I'd done lots of racing, but then suddenly it was like this, this whole experience as well as the, the bike race. And as you described it, the, and, and that just instantly captured me really. And that was sort of definitely the moment when, you know, we'd read a little bit about Dakar. Um, it was the only sort of famous enough race, I guess, to, 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 um, to get you into the, yeah, that, that made it to the magazines in Australia, I suppose, um, so so suddenly it was like that was on the radar from from that moment and uh and and actually uh what it made me start doing it was the trigger to make me want to come and race in Europe because I started uh I started then researching about racing overseas and there was one or two Aussies that had come to Europe and done European championships enduros as it was then and and of course every year there was a little group of Aussies that went to the six days and until I discovered this rally, you know, the ISD, the six days was definitely like my dream from racing in Juros in Oz was to go and do a six days. But, but yeah, this, this, this whole adventure of the rally thing captured me at that moment. So I started, uh, I started trying to research it and it was really hard for Oz, but, um, you know, I got in touch with the FIM and, and as I say, it turned out that then that late eighties, early nineties, there was this little scene of European, European rallies going on, um, so yeah, I just started looking into that, and and it was definitely the trigger that made me want to come to to Europe rather than say like a lot of Aussies went to America to race as well. Um, and so yeah, I came over here, and turned out I did. Uh, you know, there was a rally then called Montes de Cuenca in the um, in Spain in the northeast. So I went and raced that. There was a, a fantastic one in Italy back in those days. It was called the Transitalia Marathon. And it literally kind of went right down the center of Italy for five or six days. I don't think you could probably do it anymore, you know. Um, but again, massive adventure um, in, involved in it. And that, that was kind of the start of that. And then that whole Euro scene kind of died for a, a lot of years, really. And it was only Dakar and the African races. And now the great thing is, is all that kind of fun entry-level mini rallies is is definitely come back you know there's a bunch of them now isn't there and mm. um and i think that's what's you know it's a chicken and egg thing but that's what's helped kind of uh make a nice fun way to go rally racing without the the high stakes of dakar for a lot of people that just like that ex- idea of the adventure with a little bit of competition thrown in so since you kind of did those rallies in in the early 90s what are, what have you kind of done rally wise since Um well like like you said yeah pretty pretty random curve really um I came over I did the, the New Caledonia one I did the ones in Spain and Italy um and then I I probably 
ended up then just doing – I did one ISDE. That was always on the dream list. You know, I did a, a six days in Holland. Um, and then, yeah, I, I kind of did like happens to a lot of people, I guess, in that sort of mid-20s, early 30s. I didn't do that much racing. I kind of ran out of um, that balance of money versus work. And I did a lot of working and I did a lot of just local events, um, you know, local UK hare and hounds and enduros, some British enduro championships and stuff like that. Um, for five or six years, really, because it didn't have the money. You know, there's no question that to go rally racing, the the amount of money it costs is higher, and especially higher proportional to, you know, the amount of time you can go and do a local UK event for thirty pounds entry and a little bit of fuel, and a, and you know you can ride on a second hand tire, and the consequence isn't that high if you mess the day up. Whereas as soon as you go to rally, you know everything's got to be perfect because you've put a lot of time and money into this one event. It's a multi-day event, five, six days. So you've spent thousands on one event. So it's kind of high consequence per dollar. So I, I didn't really do any rallies then for a few years, but it was always still, you know, there. So then, um, I think it was 97. I kind of went, no, I want to do this again. And, uh, I went and did the, uh, it was a rally then called the Atlas rally. Um, it was in Morocco. It was fantastic. It was uh, a little bit of dunes, but it was much more based around the Atlas Mountains. Um, it was a really, really fantastic, I think, eight-day eight day event. And I kind of did that a little bit because the Dakar thing was always, you know, ticking away there. And I tried a few times to kind of find sponsorship and stuff. But I didn't know how to go about that. So I didn't really succeed. And, and then... I kind of found this, I came up with this idea to go to Dakar in 98. So that Atlas Rally in 97 almost became a little bit of a test case to see. I'd never done that, uh, you know, the African desert racing thing, really. And I didn't, you know, the bits that I've always loved about about Rally aren't really the going flat out high speed across open country. You know, I, I, that wasn't what appealed to me. What appealed to me was the adventure of going and doing, yeah, that, like I've already described, that whole experience, the whole project, the whole process of getting to the start and, um, and taking on a big adventure. It wasn't necessarily about the desert for me. It was definitely about the the overall adventure so i didn't really know if the desert thing would work for me or not i didn't grow up in a desert racing desert races i'd done one or two in oz but you know they weren't the most exciting races i'd done i definitely prefer to be stuck in a forest in second gear smashing my knuckles against trees you know that's uh that's kind of uh, that's why i grew up racing and that's what i still really really like is that more technical um so i went and did that atlas rally in morocco um to to you know to sort of see that really but of course i loved it you know there was no it wasn't it wasn't really a question it was just me pretending there was a question mark over that um but as i say that one was in the mountains a lot as well there was a couple of really fast days but a lot of it was actually you know really fun riding in the mountains and then uh yeah and that and that directly i rode you know i had a pretty good ride there and that definitely read led directly to my my first Dakar, in which I was totally clueless. Yeah, it was <laughs> I had no idea. It was such a big step and such a different level. Even though I'd raced at 
you know, a pretty high level in many events all around the world. I actually, I didn't mention it, but I raced in Japan in 89 as well. So, you know, and I won a bunch of races there. So I definitely raced at like a pretty decent level and I'd done it, had a breadth of experience, but it was still total rookie compared to Dakar. You know, there was no question. I was fish out of water on that first one. Um, yeah, I can't remember where the question started there, but, but, um, I think yeah, you've that, pretty that, much that, uh, you saw, that was the sort of progression, I guess, to to get into that first Dakar. And and I think another thing you probably got it out down as another question somewhere. But another thing that was certainly true that you know with what came from that first Dakar was then I definitely got re inspired and I did a bunch of other races. Then you know I I raced um, I raced uh, Tunisia, as I said Atlas Rally Morocco. I went to Trans Oriental Rally, which was the most incredible event I've ever done, from St. Petersburg to Beijing, um, all through Kazakhstan and China. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of reignite, reignited something. It didn't need much reigniting, but for sure it, it got me inspired to go and do a bunch of those other races. Roof of Africa in South Africa, absolutely incredible event, etc. Yeah. So... Yeah. Let's start with with the actual races that you you can do. I think there's nothing like you you've touched on there. There's nothing more motivating than just seeing a place name written down and being like, "That sounds awesome. I want to go there." And I think for me, that's why rallies are so good is because yeah. they they almost give you an opportunity to they force your hand a little bit to go somewhere you wouldn't. Like I, I've totally had that experience as well. I got to do a race in China because it was exciting and I kind of tried to do so. I don't think I would go and ride a motorbike in China otherwise without a great deal of effort, but the rally kind of almost facilitated the adventure. So when it comes to rallies, there are stacks that you can do at the moment, but choosing one to start with can be pretty pretty tricky. You know, there's kind of a, a varying level of accessibility and difficulty. So, what makes a good beginner rally and which ones do you kind of recommend? Yeah. And, and what you just said is like a really good point for me. Um, it, you know, it's a massive excuse to go and go somewhere you might not otherwise go and make a massive, you know, that makes the adventure. And, and then there's two sides to choosing that kind of event. And I think that depends a little bit on your experience and your personality. What's the right way to go. But, you, you know, there's a bunch of these, like, really good, really well-organized um, events now, like like uh, Hellas Rally and Ceres Rally in Greece. I haven't done Hellas, but Ceres I've done two times, three times. I can't remember now. Absolutely fantastic, super accessible, very friendly. The people there are really nice, um, really well-organized. So, like, as in terms of, like, the race side of going to do a rally, fantastic first one to do or early one to do in in an international sense um but you know the other side to it is like you got the fortuitous uh, thing to go and do that tackle macken one in in china and i've done a couple others like that where they're not actually that well known they're not that well organized um but there's a magic in that as well because you on those ones you sort of end up um going a bit more for the adventure and a bit less for the the race because the racing's a bit chaotic and disorganized but the adventure's great and you get involved in on those ones you tend to get involved in a little bit more in in the people you know that, that you're going there to do and the new caledonia one that i talked about back in the 80s that was a classic example of that because we you know we ended up staying in people's houses and um you know 
the stuff was a little bit crazy and we went you know we went out to this uh, island that normally wasn't accessible for tourists and we ate turtle with the locals and you know these kind of things can happen on those kind of uh less well-known out of the way rallies so that that's kind of an interesting thing about it as well at the moment that i think there are because there's so many of them cropping up there are those kind of ones out there as well but you definitely have to be a little bit more um prepared for things not to be right and to be a bit chaotic and disorganized if that's what you're going to do if you know if if you're nervous about the scenario and you want your first couple to be you know not out of your comfort zone from the um uh from the sort of travel side of things um because the racing's already a big deal for you then you know the the seres the hellas the these ones that are quite well known are perfect I think, and I think, I think the reason those other ones were enjoyable and exciting for me was because the racing was well in my comfort zone because I'd done so much racing, mm-hmm. you know. So you're only dealing with one new element. Yeah, and when you, I suppose, yeah. when you go into that kind of, uh, you know, kind of level of removed environment, it's a pretty emotional experience in its own right. The food is super different, the culture is super different, time zones, like everything changes, and that's pretty strenuous in its own right. Um, yeah yeah and, and then you can't be stressed on where you, whether you're going to win or not do you know like yeah well you say that <laughs> <laughs> no but you, you know what i mean you will be but um yeah no i can't it's... take that seriously yeah. no yeah for sure not i think one of the other things that's quite uh, a big difference between some rallies and other rallies uh, especially with rallies like Sela, ceres and hellas versus say north african rallies is that you can quite often not finish a day and it doesn't matter in terms of your overall experience you can still get up the next day and start again so if you reach a limit maybe that's not such a big drama whereas if you go and do something like morocco rally maybe that's not so the case like you're not going to get a finishers medal you definitely can't do that in dakar in the same way so that's kind of, I think, a really big point as well, is that those rallies, those smaller ones, actually allow you to have more fun. I've experienced that twice, once through uh, an engine failure. And they let me change my engine, take a day off and come back later in the week and just continue plodding along and, well, winning stages and not punishing you for it, um, which I think is really cool. So when it, when it yeah. comes to, to the riding level, I think that's always a huge question on people on people's lips when they when they're like uh, a little bit caught by rallies and they want to go and try one, but it's really ambiguous as to what the level is. When you go and do like a local event, a there's no risk because you turn up and it's either too hard or it's not. But also they're generally quite open about the level you need to be. So what what do you need riding skills wise? What level do you need to be at, and what what do you need to improve? Because obviously, like if you live in western europe the riding is probably very different to what it is say in greece or so on so what skills do you need to make to improve to be good enough to do those rallies yeah but i i think i think you know like i I'm, i always argue anyone can go and have a go at, at anything there's no question about that you know you don't you don't need to be a world level rider to go and have a go however you know, the, the, the better you get your level and your fitness, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, as you get better, you sort of need to be fitter as well. It's, it's a chalk and, you know, it's a chicken and egg problem, really. Um, 
but but you know the better you get your level um the more for me i think the more you can enjoy going and doing your first one because if your riding level and your fitness level are a little bit higher you know you take away one problem and you're going to see more of the country you're traveling through you're going to enjoy the riding more because you're you know you you've got all these other new things to experience and learn if you're still like trying to work out how to safely break going down a steep downhill um and that hill's terrifying for you then the whole day becomes an ordeal the whole day becomes twice as long so you're twice as exhausted so you know you end up with a headache at the end of the day because you've got dehydration and you don't go and hang by the pool and have a beer and talk to all the other guys and enjoy the the camaraderie and the spirit of the day because the day's been an ordeal you know so um like ever as you as those things get more relaxed and you enjoy it more then you're going to enjoy the rally more so there's no there's no if you're not this good you shouldn't go and do a rally absolutely you should go and have a go you know there's no question about that but improving your riding more and more before you go will make the experience better i think um and and also you know especially in adventure world the the rallies have got this you know this um mystique and this magic about them now but but for me especially when i was racing dakar and i was trying you know quite hard to race every year with dakar you know the bit the, the most enjoyable part of the whole year's experience was that i had to tell myself that to be in you know to ride well enough and be in good enough shape the point was to go and race every week or race every other week here and and you know there's some fantastic you know one day events all around the uk take the word rally out of it just off-road rides you know off-road races um and it's really important that you embrace them and enjoy them because they are they're what will change your level very quickly and very dramatically because you're then doing a weekend week out instead of one five-day race once a year or twice a year you know that doesn't improve your level you'll go back to those rallies and do the same things and have the same problems every every day but you'll have a lot of fun going out and doing a three-hour hare and hounds every other weekend here you know and um and there'll be one weekend where you'll hate it because it rains and it's full of tree roots and it's gnarly and difficult but that'll change your level anyway just by doing it i mean patsy talked about it on your last podcast a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was um you, you know you start to look for lines differently you start to solve problems and and when you then go to a rally that stuff's all in programmed in there um and and that becomes easy on a rally you know gen- generally as we know the technicality of rally riding is is lower it's you know it's generally not that difficult but it can there can be a section that's extremely difficult you know a difficult gnarly descent or difficult climb and it's stacked into a seven hours of riding so you know if you make that one bit hard then the next hour is hard you know even if it's easy terrain yeah so yeah so all all that you know for me that's part of the whole journey is going and enjoying all those all those other rides and those other races that that that, that are super fun anyway and change your level and i think people don't know about those you know it's such a secret sport that people don't know that there's all that option here i mean you can pick any not at the moment obviously but in normal times any weekend there's let's say six to ten off-road competitions taking out motocross and trials which is you know a different story but just just off-road events there's you know six to ten across the country every single weekend so there's a lot of fun to be had in your own 
backyard and it super prepares you for for that you know that one or two big adventures that you've targeted in the year or in you know in a year's time or something like that um yeah so that's kind of that's always been the fun for me is the 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 spin-offs from the the big adventure as well you know it's all part of the the story and especially if you're putting your head i'm not going there to win a you know a, a eastern center championship or whatever because that is another thing if you want to do that that's all you're doing but if you're going there because you're preparing to go and do this big adventure in your mind that weekend's just super fun and of course you'll look at your results and you'll try and get better but you're not mm. you know that's not the focus that the focus of those weekends is then just fun it's it's, it's kind of almost like uh, the way you're describing it. it's almost like putting in your training rides for for like a an ironman or like doing your runs when you're training for a marathon but unlike your training runs for a marathon they might actually be fun <laughs> yeah. yeah totally so i think when it comes to riding rallies especially in my experience they're they're quite different to enduros like the way they work the riding obviously like you've said the enduro skill helps massively but there's still a learning curve i think i definitely went through that i made some interesting mistakes and everyone else i've been to rallies with also goes through this learning curve where you make mistakes you learn problems so what are the biggest mistakes that you made when you first started doing rallies and you touched on it a little bit with dakar and what are the mistakes you see other people make at the beginning of their rally journey yeah that well that's that's an excellent question because i haven't worked out all those mistakes yet there's still uh you know it's it's endless isn't it it's like you said right at the start it's a super complicated sport no question about it um i think you know the better you can be the better you can kind of be prepared before you get to the start you know this is always true of any any sport isn't it the better you can be prepared before the start um the, the better but when i talk about that you know that's with the whole complexity of the event as well so it's um, you know, is your bike actually ready? Like not still putting things on it at scrutineering, um, uh, you know, which is almost with rally, it's almost impossible to eliminate actually, because, you know, a lot of the time you have to rent the, you know, especially with the bigger rents, you have to rent the nav gear from them and you have to kind of have all that wide on at scrutineering. <laughs> so, so you just kind of want everything as perfect as you can get it before you get there. Um, with your bike, with the, the, the rule book, the rules are so complicated. And with rallies, you know, there is a generic set of um, principles and rules that are, you know, on the FIM website or whatever, but every rally has these idiosyncrasies because of where it is and who's running it and, you know, the locale and complexities. And as boring as it is, knowing that rule book um, gives you half a chance of not messing up with that complexity and it is super complex isn't it you look at you look at every single set of results from every dakar ever and everyone always goes oh why is that guy got a penalty why is that got a penalty and even in the top 20 the best riders in the world that have a whole team behind them reading the rule book always end up at the end of the race with some penalty against their score because it's kind of impossible to be perfect but the better you know that stuff the the more chance you're not gonna you're not gonna mess up and um so, yeah, it's all that sort of pre-event stuff. And then your karma, you know, your karma at the start line because you sort of know what's going on within limits. 
as you've experienced. They then change the goalposts. You know, they change the goalposts at the briefing. They change the goalposts every night. So you always have to make sure, no matter how tired you are, you go and look at that notice board and see what rules changed or or what your start times changed and no one's told anybody about it, but it's, it's hidden on a little corner on a notice board somewhere. So, you know, you have to go to the briefings. You have to go and check the notice board. Um, yeah, you kind of have to know what's going on. I, I mean, I, I think, um, I can't remember, I think it was the Dakar when you guys came and tried to follow it as journalists, and there was a classic one there where they, they did some modifications to the road book and no one could understand them. They tried to explain it in the briefing. No one could understand them. We were all, as riders, having these little conferences in little things. And then I'm like, right, Cyril will know what's going on. This is Cyril Dupre. Unfortunately, I know Cyril from, from, from time. So I'm like, I went and knocked on Cyril's motorhome door and said, Cyril, what do you make of all this? And uh, he said something totally different to what I thought. And I'm like, ah, oh, it still doesn't make sense. But Cyril must be right. So all the changes I'd changed in my road book, I changed back to how Cyril put it. And then they had another emergency briefing, which we went to, and actually we ended up having to put it back to how I had it in the first place. And then, you know, even the best guys in the world, like I say, those guys have got team managers trying to help and sort. So I think the other thing is, you know, don't get stressed on that stuff. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's also the beauty of that racing, isn't it, that it is a little bit chaotic and it is, it is a little bit carnage. And like I said, sometimes the best rallies, the best memories in hindsight, like with all adventures, are the ones when the organisers mess everything up. I mean, we had it on Trans-Oriental Rally where we got, me and a couple other riders got to the final checkpoint of the day after riding nearly a 1,000 kilometres. And uh, we turned up and we're like, this is a bit strange. It doesn't seem to even be a bivouac on the horizon. And we got to the actual point of the finish of the stage. And there was two guys from the organization with a desk to stamp you in at the end of the check. And then we're like, so where's the bivouac? And they were sat there going, oh, we don't know. No one's turned up. <laughs> we're in the right place. And sure enough, <laughs> the organization didn't, didn't even arrive till um, the, yeah, 3 a.m. in the morning or something. So by that time, you know, we ridden another 100 k's to another town to get some food and fuel and come back to where the bivouac was and slept in uh in you know tarpaulins that we found uh from the local village and and all this stuff but you know that that's that's kind of from a racer's point of view super frustrating and and annoying but from personal life and memories and all that it's they're the best you know they're the best times and and that can only happen with rally you know like you say that'll never happen in an enduro or a uh, a hare and hounds because all the racers that are there all throw their arms up and go home um so yeah that's kind of what you go for as well is the fact that you don't know what's going on most of the time and for sure with rally even after i don't know i've done 50 now most of the time you never know what's going on is... <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of... yeah i'm i don't disagree with that at all <laughs> so you touched on it a little bit in that question um the subject of navigation. I think whenever we post anything about rallies, especially questions like, what do you want to know? The first thing that someone says is navigation. What is it? How do I do it? I don't understand. How am I going to find my way? Am I going to end up in the wrong country? And I'm sure the answers to those questions are always, you're never going to know. You are going to end up in the wrong country. But, and I remember even, even by this point, like I got to, to doing Dakar, I had 
you know, done four rallies by that point. And I, I consider myself like pretty comfortable with navigation. But even in the middle of Dakar, I was sat there and I was like, how do I solve this problem? I'm lost. I don't understand why are all the tracks going there, but the roadbooks is there. What's going on? This doesn't make any sense. So to start with, let, let's go like let's talk about the equipment you need. What what equipment is essential for a small rally in terms of navigation? What's nice to have and what do you absolutely not need? Yeah, okay. So... Yeah, the absolute simple base setup, which is all you need, is um, a roadbook on the handlebars. You know, you can clamp it straight onto the handlebars there. There's a few companies out there doing nice little brackets for that. And on the top of the roadbook, you know, on the same bracket, a trip meter running off a magnet on the front wheel. And, and that, you know, with that, you can you can turn up. You don't need, you know, any fancy fairings or any, anything more than that. That's the... That's the the base. Um, it's always nice to know what time it is as well, just mentally. But that's a Casio watch, you know, just wrapped around your your handlebars or your master cylinder for whatever you can buy one of them from Argos now, six quid kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that's all you need, no question. And and for sure, with all the small rallies, that's it. Um, once you get into uh, a desert environment with African type rallies, then it gets more complicated and it gets more complicated for because one, you need to have a, a, a compass heading as well for the open desert. Um, and two, because usually that's part of the organizer's system that they supply and rent to you because it's got built in safety th- systems as well. And that, that stuff costs and takes up more room on your, your handlebars. And that's where, you know, the question mark gets a little bit more, is a fairing better and stuff? Because it gives you a bit of space to put all that that stuff. And a fairing is nicer with a lot more high-speed riding. Um, but, you, you know, again, that's sort of varied from rally to rally. And that's changing very quickly with technology at the moment. You know, I think everybody's probably seen that even Dakar next year is going to be digital roadbook. Um so that that's kind of starting to change and changing quickly, really. But the key thing is it's always that safety equipment. And it's what it's another bit that what makes those African and the desert rallies a lot more expensive than your your mountain based rallies inside Europe, because the safety comes into to play. And and rightly so, you know, when you're out in those environments and there's you know local areas, hospitals aren't that great. You don't want to end up in one of them. And the organisers have got their own hospital setups, their own helicopters. Everything's ring-fenced in the organisation. And so you've got your own safety setup on the bike that lets the organisers know where you are and that you're moving at all times. You know, as soon as the bike falls over or has a sudden stop, they know about it. But that, that stuff is complex and comes at a price. But, yeah, to get started and do those simple rallies, hey, roadbook on the handlebars and a trip meter, go, go for it. Easy. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, go on. Yeah. You, I think part B of that question was about how do you actually know what's going on with the navigation? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So that was my next question is, is what, how does navigation actually work? And a little bit, how can you practice it? Yeah. So yeah, I've come back to the point before, like you said, no idea. 50 rallies still don't know what's going on most of the time. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, it's a constant learning thing for sure and like with any skill the more 
more of it you do, the more you understand and the more of it becomes intuitive. You know, it's definitely the case now that I have much more of a, a feel of how the organizer writes the roadbook. And again, that, that is varied a little bit from organizers to organizers. So I'm probably, I'm probably actually best at navigating inside the Dakar bubble, that which is ASO organization. You know, they have their own kind of style. And even though it's pretty generic across the rally world, you know, the way one organizer writes their roadbook has their personal flavor to it a little bit, you know. Um, and I've done more of ASO's events than other organizations. So there is a little bit of getting into the mindset of the guy that's written the roadbook on the first day to see how he thinks about what he's seeing in front of him when he's written it. Uh, so, you know, but but definitely I have a little bit more feeling now of what it means um, when they do their little drawing and what they're looking at in, in the the world and you know we all will drive down the road don't we and you drive down the m4 one person will notice one particular type of signpost and the other person will notice all the wind turbines on the side of the road you know like we all see different things when we're traveling through the world and different things flag up to different personalities so that happens inside a road book as well you know when it might be turned right at a junction and and if what the guy's drawn it always draws a picture of a, a tree and another guy always draws a picture of a rock, do you know, like a, it, it's as simple as that, really. You have to kind of work at, work that out a little bit. So there's no question the more of it you do, the, the more relaxed you'll get. But I've also got another very uh, theory I believe in as well is that it, it's actually about how much of your brain you've got left to navigate because if I give you that road book – with those drawings on it and you've got time to look at the drawing and work it out and work out what it means because you're walking down the street and everything's happening at a quite a slow pace, you will know when you get to the end of the street that turn right means turn right. But when you're going along down the road at 40 miles an hour and that corner's approaching very quickly and you're tired and dehydrated and your brain's not working and most of your brain's getting used up with uh, your riding ability then for sure when you get to the corner you have to stop and spend 30 seconds looking at the road book to work out what it means so i go back to that thing of the better you're riding and the fitter you are then there's less of your brain dealing with that stuff and you've got some brain power left for the navigating and i and i think for you know when you watch all the pro guys and the factory guys you know they they've worked that out in the last years because now they spend a lot of their time you see them when they're doing their fitness routines where they're also they're also doing some kind of uh, analytical process in the middle of their fitness pro uh, fitness routine so that they're training their brain to to still be able to think when their heart rate's already maxed out at 180 beats a minute and you're not just thinking about your heart about to explode you're thinking I've still got to work out something uh, academic and you know they spend a lot of time doing that now so I you know, that that's where rally's complicated and you need the whole picture. You know, if you're a factory rider and someone can, you can go out to Morocco and spend a month out there with a road book, of course it's advantageous, but most of us don't have that opportunity. So you're not practicing the road book until you're at the race. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, so the better you can be with all that other stuff when you're at the race, you can, um, you know, you can be concentrated on that. And, 
and it is important the navigation is important everybody says it all the time and like you said it's the biggest fear about going to the rally but for for me it, it's kind of not actually you know it's not it's a fun part of it rather than a stressful part of it it adds to the adventure and the experience and you have to embrace that at some point you're going to get lost we see it every year don't we the factory guys are lost everybody gets lost and anyone that tells you it happens every time you get to the end of the stage you know you pull in with your kind of peer group of guys that you ride around every every day and someone will sit there on the finish line and go i nailed the navigation i got it absolutely perfect today and then you go over and look at their trip meter and the length of the stage says 513.74 kilometers and their trip meter says 543 and you're like i'm calling you out on this dude you did not get that right (laughs) and 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 it's 100 percent true you know you're gonna you're gonna get lost and that's part of rally and that's part of the adventure and that's part of the excitement so accept that i think yeah i'm i haven't played with it now but i know a few other guys that are sort of around my level have talked about using the the PlayStation Dakar game, and they reckon that's a pretty good way to practice. But I'd still rather, I'd still rather spend an hour going out and get getting fit riding my dirt bike than I would sat in front of the PlayStation game. But you, that's me. You'd also have to figure out how to plug it into your TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think not not, not interested. <laughs> I think one of the other things on on that same subject is that unless you're a pretty quick off road rider, you the chances are. Uh, one of the things I think a lot of people miss with rallies is that unless you're in the top five, you've generally got some tracks as well. It might get a bit confusing at times, but there is quite often a little bit of a ground mark to help guide you, or you've got other people around you to help guide you on longer stages and, and bigger rallies that you might get a bit more spaced out, but it's not, I never, there's very few situations in rallies where there isn't some kind of guiding mark unless you're at the front. And then absolutely, I've only started one stage first and it was the most terrifying experience of my entire life. And I wanted to give it up as quickly as I did. So I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's kind of a thing that a lot of people miss is that unless you are a quick off road guy, you're generally or girl no like unless you're quick off-road you're not going to be in that position where you're leading out from the front and your navigation has to be really good um so that's kind of another factor in that in terms of actual using the road book i mean we made a video about that on mini tip monday two years ago maybe where we broke down the exact technical specifications of how you go through a road book but what are the most common mistakes you see with navigation, especially in new people where that's something that they can avoid, you know? So I think what, what you said is true there, you know, a lot of the time there are um, marks on the ground or some other indication. Um, and, and it's a little bit easier from the point of view of then how I feel for, for that scenario is that you still must navigate and you must navigate every box, but it's a bit easier when you're check navigating than when you're like you said, when you're near the front of the field and you make that um, opening decision or making your own decision. Um, but, but the, the flip side of that is it can be worse actually. Cause I like, like you, I've not had a lot of experience at, at the front of the field, but I have a few times and, and actually, I personally prefer it when you can make your own call because, you know, what can happen, especially in the desert rallies, is you get to that scenario 
and you had it where you had a proper meltdown where we got to a point and the roadbook was clearly saying to turn right up a gully and there were just tracks in every direction because already 100 people had gone the wrong way and then it's carnage you know then it's worse and so for me what's super important and the mistake is is getting lazy and just following the dust and just following the following the tracks is that you must even when that's happening and there's good information on the ground you must still check navigate you know so so for sure it's a bit easier to and a bit quicker to to not have to work it out completely for yourself but you should still check every box and all the information in every box because the classic example of that is when there are a myriad of tracks and the the roadbook maybe says whatever the track distance is turn right and you turn right but you miss that in the right hand box it's got a little uphill arrow and you turn right onto the track that then starts going downhill it's clearly wrong it's clearly right if you've only taken in 60% of the information but if you've taken in all of the information it's not correct so you know for me it's super important that you look at all the info they've given you if they've put the info in there it's because it's pertinent you know they don't put something in there that's not relevant to that that place so you have to check all the information the the info on the ground from the other riders for sure is useful um but it's got to match it's got to match what the organizers said and the full information of what they said so um you know i've seen it loads and i was definitely guilty of it at the start when i mark you know with the marketing the roadbook up where you just went all right that box is straight 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 ignore them roll on four boxes do you know and then oh that's the next one that looks complicated i'll worry about that and then you riding along and you go oh, i don't care about that one i don't care about that one i don't care about that they put those ones in because they're important to the overall picture of where you've got to go so for me it's super important that you pay attention to everything they give you it might only be fleeting attention sometimes but it's all there for a reason so so yeah make sure you look at every everything they've given you even they don't do it so much now but um you know i remember when when we st- when we when I started, they also used to give you like a sort of four page summary of the day, and it'd be a bit more generic. It'd be like, okay, the route starts off in an open plain. You follow the open plain for forty kilometres, and then when you get to some power lines, you turn off down into a valley. And and like, I used to always pay a lot of attention to that, the generic concept of the day, and that was really, really helpful to navigating the individual things. I think they've stopped giving that out now because, which will be interesting next year, you know, what, what started to happen was the teams were creating that for themselves. So the, the fast guys were going to the start line in the morning knowing that they were, you know, in the desert for the first 30 Ks and then they should be in a mountain pass and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but obviously they've eliminated that for next year. So it'll be interesting to see if they get that kind of base picture of the day back. I think you, you touched on it in your, your answer to that question a little bit there um, with making sure that your, your roadbook matches the ground in front of you. And I think also on, on that same subject, one of the things I noticed most when it comes to getting lost is, is that process of paying attention to that because it can be really, really easy to match. And I, I did this in Serre is probably the worst to match the ground that you're riding on to the roadbook, even though it's not right. Do you know, because things can be 100 meters out, 50 meters out, you start to go, well, there was a right hand turn there and I was meant to go straight through it. So I'm going to go straight. And then all of a sudden you get to a point 5K away where you're like, 
well, this doesn't make any sense anymore. But 5K is a long way when you're going in the wrong direction. Do you know? It adds up and it adds up. And yeah. I think at some point that's happened to all of us or where you've yeah, been in yeah. reverse, where you've been doubting it and you're like, is this right? Does this match? And you've kind of stopped going in the correct direction because you're not quite sure. So like you said, that's a, a really important part of navigating is to make sure that you're taking everything in that's in the road book, regardless of how fast you want to ride. Yeah, yeah. One of the other yeah, things you sure. one of the other things you touched on there was the marking of the roadbook. And I think if there's anything about rallies that have mystique, it is the marking of the roadbook, especially because all the photos we see of roadbooks are never of a privateer in 50th place. It's always of one of the pros and they have gone to town. They've got people helping them with their marking and they have the craziest systems with colors that look like a child's coloring books. They've got boxes around everything and big letters everywhere and everyone looks different. So we covered this a bit in the Dakar podcast, but what is the actual deal with marking a road book? So I, I probably go back to the, what I mentioned earlier there before of the, the guy that's written the road book has a, a view of the world and their system. And I think when you're riding, you know, what those guys are trying to do is trying to, you know, spend the time before they're following the route to, to take that guy's mindset and put it into the way their brain works. And that's why everybody has their own way of marking the road book, you know. So, so they're spending that time because a little bit also with those guys, they've got that time because, because they're faster and fitter. You know, they're arriving at the end of the stage three or four hours before normal people. So they've got three or four hours to, to, to put that stuff into their mind system. And, 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 you know, like with everything in life, you do it better when there is a process and there is a system. And so for your own riding skills, it's really important that you work out what that is. And, you know, like I know for, for me, and it's a real concentration thing, but it's really important that I, that I like to look at the next road book in the next box i like to look at the next box as i exit a corner you know um and then keep that in your mind of what's coming next and then i only need to look at you know i only need to look at the trip distance and having my mind roughly how fast you're traveling what that next distance is uh so you know and everybody's a little bit different with that but you know for me that system is super important so you know so when i have highlighted roadbook i'll always highlight you know, what that next distance is, is important to me. So that that's kind of what the marking is all about, is kind of trying to translate the, the organizer's mindset into your own mindset. Now, we get back to how important is that, and, you know, down the field a little bit, we've already talked, you've kind of, you've, you've got additional information that the front guys don't have because you've got other marks on the ground, and, and how important is that? You know, I would say it's one of those things that's really hard not to do because everyone around you is doing it and everybody's doing it to different levels and everybody has their own, you know, Bible of, of the way they mark that up. But I actually don't think it's that important. I think it's just more important that when you're riding, you're, like I've already said, look at all that info. And, I, and I've had it loads of times, especially when I started going to Dakar. Not so much on the smaller rallies because the smaller rallies – You've got two or three hours in the evening to, to study it beforehand. And as I say, get a feel of what the whole day is as well. 
um, which does help you in the day. And that's another reason those fast guys do it is they want to have a feel that, you know, I'm expecting to drop into a dry riverbed for 30 kilometers, you know, and after an hour into the day, they, they've got that kind of overall big picture of where they're thinking they're going to go. Um, but, but yeah, for me, once I started doing Dakar and you get into this situation where you're, you're dehydrated, fatigued, uh, etc., and food and sleep is, is a far bigger priority than marking the road book up. And I started having days where I was like, I'm not going to do the road book. I'm just going to put it on the bike and go. In fact, in that first Dakar, I had several times where I was like, I can't even be asked to put it in the bike. I put it in my pocket. And the first time I start to get lost, I'll put it on the bike then. <laughs> and, and, and ironically, that didn't actually go that badly for me. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, definitely just putting it in the bike and, and cons- just forgetting about the whole marking up. It, it wasn't any harder. It wasn't any harder to navigate at all. But, you know, that's my brain. You know, I'm quite happy to take that half a second to just read that box as I say coming out of the corner and and then I've got until the next obstacle to kind of assimilate that in my brain to what it's going to mean when I get there um but you know everybody's got to work out their own way with that but it's definitely I definitely don't think it's everything's important in the whole package rally like I said right at the start the better you can be prepared and the better you can make everything you make your life easier but if we're talking about sort of value of how important that is, I think it's right, right, right down below riding, fitness, hydration, eating well, you know, managing all the rest of your rally is far more important than spending three hours coloring in a, a, a picture book. Um, and, and, you know, again, that's going to change, isn't it? Because now there is a sort of standard coloring system. They tested it on whatever number of days it was on Dakar this year. You know, it's a standard now. Um, everybody's going to have to just live with that because they're putting it into digital form and it will be coloured in. Um, so you have to learn the organisers why and that's how it's going to be. Mm. So yeah, it's an interesting, contentious point amongst people. I definitely sit on the side of that fence where I'm like, if I don't have to spend three hours a night marking the road book, amen. Oh, massively, you know, I'm going there. I'm going there to not sit at a desk and do paperwork. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, get rid of that bit. Just spend more time riding motorbikes and talking. You know, and and, and instead of sitting there colouring in for three hours, and you're gonna, if you have got three hours, you're going to go and sit by the, you know, especially in those smaller rallies in Serres and stuff like that, where it's a real fun social environment. You're going to go and sit by the pool and have a beer for two hours. Like, hey, you know, not too, that's what we're going to do these things for. Depends how many beers you can drink in two hours. You want to be careful well, with that I one. I said eight. Yeah, no, eight. <laughs> that's, all, that's definitely all I've got. <laughs> So I think you touched on it earlier already, but one of the one of the equally frustrating and enjoyable things about rallies is the bureaucracy. Now, events that I've done where the racing is the priority, where it's all about who can go the fastest, the rules are so strict, especially in the UK, in the US, in France and Spain. I think they're really, you know, hot on the rules being followed they're to the letter they never change they all run from the same international or national rule book but with rallies that is a much grayer process and the organization of things is always hectic there's always some bureaucracy involved there's always a rule change and I remember even though I'd done a few rallies before I went to Dakar you told me 
at the start of the race to always pay attention to your number getting called for the start and remembering who's around you. And on the second day of the race, the guy doing the starting just skipped over me and I had to fight my way to get my start time. I actually missed it and ended up starting with two quads, which was a nightmare. And that whole process became really stressful because I didn't want to be stuck behind two quads on a mountain pass in the dust, getting filled in with rocks. I ended up trying really hard and having a race with another guy for 10 Ks and then crashing because of that whole process. You know, you get caught up in it. It's a bit too exciting. And it was such a silly thing that I was reliant on someone else to do their job and they didn't do their job. So it made my, do you know that whole kind of process is very bureaucratic. We've had it in Ceres as well, where rules change, things happen, the organizers go, well, we can't have this happening. So now we're going to change it. It affects people. So what are the, some of the things that people do really need to pay attention to with that stuff? Yeah. Like I said, the, the, you, you know, the, there's always a rule book, isn't there with those events and they're usually not that exciting to read, but it's definitely worth knowing what's supposed to be going on before you go to the start. And and that's where the watch on the handlebars is a classic thing. Cause um, as, as you say, you can't rely on the officials to know what's going on. Cause in all honesty, most of the officials, even at Dakar, you know, they're, they're, they're volunteers. They're people that are passionate about the sport and they want to be around it. But for sure, they haven't been briefed properly. They haven't read the rule book properly. So they don't know what's going on either. So it's important that you know what's supposed to happen. Even when you do, for sure, there's going to be times when it's not going to happen how it's supposed to happen. But if at least you know and you can see on the organizer's clock and your watch that it's coming up to your start time and there's four minutes to go and you still haven't got your time card because the guy with the time card thing's messing around, you know, you can start to become a little bit pushy and go, hey, dude, my time's coming. I need my card now. And and then on the flip side of that, they're still going to go wrong sometimes and you have to kind of go, all right, they messed it up and it's made me angry, but, um, you know, live with it now because I've done exactly like you just described. You know, if you get angry on the start line when you've got a 400-kilometer special in front of you and you go off angry for the first 50 Ks or like I, I did it after the rest day in one Dakar one year, I was super, super fuming on the, on the start and – that day they'd flown all the VIPs in. So there was like 400 people on the outside of the first corner, 200 meters away. And I had so much steam coming out my ears and filling my goggles up. I piled in in front of everybody on it. It was literally like a hundred meters into a 400 K day. So it doesn't start your day out very well in that when you do that stuff. So yeah, there's a little bit of, it's important to, to know what's going on, what should be going on. But then when it doesn't quite go like that, also not to get too, you know, too stressed about it because, you know, when you've got those long specials as well, as much as you're frustrated in the first few minutes um, or at a check, you know, it can happen in the middle of the day, whether you come to the refuel and you're supposed to stop for 15 minutes and the guy loses your time card that's, or, you know, the refuel queues too long. So you don't get to go out right on your, your 15 minutes or something like that. You, you have to kind of go, all right, shouldn't have gone like that, but it has, but there's still another 200 Ks and the, 30 seconds I've lost here isn't actually going to matter, you know, better to, to get calm again and then just spend the rest of the day enjoying the ride and riding how you can. Um, yeah. And, and it's just part of that game. It's part of how it goes. Like the refuel, you've seen it yourself, you know, that refuel on Dakar is a classic example, especially in the first half of the race when there's still loads of people in and you get there and it's just 
your 15 minutes sounds like a long time to refuel, but when you're sat in the queue to get your fuel and then the guy fueling you up pours fuel all over you and drops your fuel cap in the sand and then you have to, you know, you've still got to eat, you've still got to refuel your camelback, you, you know, you want to clean your goggles, um, but it's a bun fight for everything, you know, and and then uh, and then you're stressed that the guy on the quads come in just behind you and you want to make sure you get out before him, you know, like all those things are going on, so... You have to, you have to kind of, like I say, you have to know what should be happening, but when it doesn't quite happen, you have to just kind of go. Eh. Well, yeah, I, I remember, right. I remember a kind of a similar thing to that happening in Serres. I think the second time I went, because the refuel was just a petrol station, so it was like yeah. a complete. Like I was lucky on time, exactly. No clock stopped. They were like, ah, oh, if you need fuel, there's a petrol station here. And you turn up and you're like trying to get your five euros out to pay for your fuel. And there's other people racing you and you need to pee and you don't want to lose any time because it's a race. And that kind of thing's carnage in a great way, but it is carnage. Um, so when it comes to rallies, they're obviously an endurance event and they're much more of an endurance event than I think you can realize until you've done one. Even when they're an easier rally, you know, the difference between like you said at the start, riding seven hours, even if you're going at a cruisy pace, seven hours without stopping is a long time. You know, when you go adventure riding or you're riding with your friends, you ride for 40 minutes at a time, an hour at a time, and you stop and you have a break. And you can do that in rallies, especially if you take a more chilled approach. But there's no doubt they're an endurance event. Now, when it comes to endurance events, there's obvious things that you should do, like have a camelback that's big enough to give you water all day. But... There's also some more things I think in there when it comes to looking after your body that people maybe miss. So what are those mistakes? And and then also within that, how do you go about getting enough calories during the day to, to sustain your output? You, you know, this, this is why for me, one of the best bits of um, preparation and training you can do is to go and do three-hour hare and hounds because I think it fixes a lot of those things if you've not been, if you've not put yourself in those scenarios before. And the best example of what you just described is when you go out trail riding or you go out fun riding with your mates. If you ever put an hour meter on your bike, some of the new enduro bikes have them, but you can you can buy an hour meter that you can put on any bike of an actual you know actual runtime of your motor. Um, the number of times when we've been out, you know, riding with our mates and you're out all day, eight, ten hours, oh, that was a great ride. And then you look at your hour meter and it hasn't got two hours on it, you know, because there's always stop, start, chat, talk to your mates, go to the cafe, fuel up, stop for a wee, all that. And when you take all that out, you don't ride that much. Um, and you might feel knackered because you've been out for eight, seven or eight hours in the great outdoors. And that that's a tiring thing in itself. But when you go and do a, a three-hour hare and hounds, which is always inevitably, let's say, three hours and 15 minutes because the clock stops for the winner at three hours. So for mo- most people, it's over three hours, or even the winner, it's over three hours. Um, and, and you have all of that. You have to, you know, it's extremely physical because you'll go as fast as you're capable of going for that time. And there's no time to eat. And in three hours, you lose definitely more calories than you, you know, your blood sugar will drop low. Um, you will run out of water. A three, uh, you know, three liter camelback is sometimes not enough for a three hour event. So you start to learn to manage those things and you start to learn your own body a little bit and you work out, 
you work out what kind of food your body can deal with when it's in that physical environment as well you know great example is you love but you you always have a pre-peeled banana at your refuel don't you a three-hour race for those people that don't know you're usually one to two refuels in that time but it's against the clock so you come in to fuel you're trying to put um petrol in your petrol tank in 30 seconds or as quick as you can in out again so it involves you being really organized your jerry can and your funnel you know where it is you know how to fuel your bike and you've got some food there to try and stuff in your body to go again and you know, I know Lel likes to have a pre-peeled banana next to his jerry can, and I. But you know, I, I stick a banana down my throat, and for sure, for the next half an hour, I'm trying to throw up. So, so you know, I like a muesli bar. You don't. You you know, my body deals with that stuff. So you kind of work out what fuel you can put in your body and still do physical exercise without stressing you out. You know. Mm-hmm. And keeping you going again and and you work out you know how much water you need we all sweat different amounts we're all different physical sizes so you know do you swap a camel back after an hour and a half always three liters enough or do you you know do you only like to ride with a two liter camel? all this stuff you start to work out and that stands you in really good stead once you go to a rally because you've got and you know even though the riding's not as intense as you've always just as you just described you're going to be on the bike for hours and hours and hours that day and some of the riding will be intense and some will be less intense so you know but now you know when you come to an intense section you sort of get a feeling of how much water and how much fuel you need to put back into your body because you know how tired that bit's made you Mm -hmm. you know so you come out of that technical bit and you you have a good few sucks on your camelback because you know that if you don't do that now in another hour you're going to be shot you know and you probably don't feel like you need to drink in the next hour because the next hour's all fast and flowing and not physical but you kind of learn about that stuff and that stuff is so 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 important you know if you go back i'm sure you've had it in racing hare and hounds but uh you know i go back to when i first started riding enduros and hare and hounds in oz we didn't even know about this hydration stuff that was like wasn't even a thing you know you race for four hours in 30 degrees and wonder why the last hour you spent screaming with your quads cramping up constantly. And then someone someone went, oh, I wonder if I have a bottle of water when I fill my bike up, if that will make a difference. And miraculously it did. And then we, you know, now we've got Camelbacks and that came out. And now you can plumb your Camelback into your helmet. And you talked me into that before a couple of Dakars back. And, it, and you know, it's as it's a much of a game changer again because you start to, once more, hydrate at the right time rather than just when you're gasping for, for water. And, so doing those smaller events and putting yourself in that stress situation teaches you those things that then stand you in really, really good stead when you go to a rally and you won't learn that stuff on a rally because the intensity is not there, mm-hmm. you know, but you need it more because you need it as much or more because you're out for six, seven hours without food and without fuel for your body. And and then your brain stops working because you're just five percent dehydrated. You know your brain performances. I can't remember the exact science behind this, but your brain performance has dropped twenty five percent, and then you can't navigate, and then you get lost, and then you've got to ride for another half an hour, so you're more tired, you know, and then you need more water, but you've run out of water. So these things start to spiral, and when you have one bad day on a rally, the next day is going to be bad as well. There's just no question about that. You know, if you if you take yourself into the red on one day on a rally, 
you're not recovering that by the next morning. The next day will be a difficult day as well, mm. 100%. You know, so so those things are like they're really really critical, and you can't go and you can't go and learn that stuff from reading it on a book or a website. You can re- learn the basic principles of hydration and and sports performance and. Um, but everybody's body is a little bit different and everybody's body responds to these core sciences in a little bit of a different way. So you have to learn, you know, you have to learn your own physiology and you can only do that by going to a couple of events. And at the end of that event, I was knacking and I had cramp and I did something different at the end of this event and I felt good at the end, you know, and, and then you sort of start to filter that down until you work out what works for, for you. I think one of the biggest things I noticed when I started riding rallies, and I, I made this mistake mostly the time I went to Dakar, is that I didn't appreciate, because I'd always been within my comfort zone at other events, how much food you need to put in. That was a really big surprise for me, was that the first probably five days of Dakar, I just didn't eat enough. Do you know? And you get... you, Or maybe that's because normally you eat more than you need. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. Your body wasn't used to eating the right amount. <laughs> but, you, you know, Sorry. so that, that was a, a big thing for me was that I ended up kind of getting to the point where I was eating two amounts of breakfast, say. Um, because I, again, I don't like to eat that much once I'm riding because it starts to repeat on you. And another really hot tip that I picked up off a friend of yours, Mark was that I duct taped energy gels. I know you don't like them, but I duct taped energy gels to the to the tank of my bike so I could pull one while I was riding. All right, you have to slow down a bit, but you can pull one and get in 200 calories of energy in a day when you're going to burn 2,500. It makes a really big difference to how you feel across the day. And those little things, like you say, I think you only learn those when you you ride enough time in that environment. So we're running out yeah. of time a little bit. And, and, and just like one other thing on, on that is the recovery at the end of the day mm-hmm. as well because it's easy to get in at the end of the day and just go, oh, that's it, it's done now. But that's like super critical at that point in that sort of 20 minutes after you, you finish the stage that you get fuel back in then and you get hydrated, mm-hmm. back, you know, fully hydrated as quick as you can. And it's really easy to go. Yeah, and just like it's time for a beer or whatever, and it is time for a beer. But before you do, just get that get get that recovery process started. Mm-hmm. That's really critical. So we're running out of time a little bit here. Um, I think one of the biggest thing we haven't talked about is bikes and the things you need to change to them to make them suitable for a rally. So first off, let's talk about yeah. what actual bikes you need. Now, a lot of the time we had this with the podcast we did with Lyndon where people are questioning whether they need a specific rally bike or they need to go and do some really big changes to their bike. What 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 do you need and what's a, like a nice to have? Yeah, okay. So we can do that pretty, pretty easy, really. Um, any of the small rallies... Um, forget a proper rally bike you know the proper rally bike comes into play once we start talking about really about Dakar or really long rallies with lots of high speed Um, but but for all your small rallies your dirt bike is is totally fine your normal enduro bike Um, and uh, like I said we can just bolt the bolt the nav stuff onto the handlebars super simple super clean you know very crash proof as well um, you know, rally bikes don't crash well. And um, so that that's really easy. And I think the only things that uh, for, for me are um, 
close to must-haves. Again, you can just definitely just turn up with your dirt bike with a road bike on, road book on the handlebars and, and have fun. Um, but close to close to must-haves, I would say is get your suspension done um, because you're maybe also going to have a bigger fuel tank on, but you've definitely got more weight on the front of the bike. And especially for anyone coming from the UK like you've said, sort of Western Europe or the eastern side of the States where generally our riding is more technical, more slow speed. Even in the more smaller rallies, you will have high-speed stuff. And when you hit high-speed stuff that you don't see with enduro valve suspension, you're at high risk of crashing out unnecessarily. So getting your suspension set up with a bit stiffer spring rates and a bit stiffer valving for that high speed is like not absolutely essential, but definitely well worth it because why crash out of a race unnecessarily? Cause you didn't spend 200 quid on getting your suspension. Right. I think that's I a, think. a big point that you just made as well is that generally suspension tuning is actually quite cheap for how much gain it gives you in terms of the safety yeah. and performance of your bike like a a really good revalve and the right springs is is somewhere in the region of 250 to 500 pounds but the difference it makes is exponential yeah. um and, and for, for, for safety and for mate you, you go on there to finish so you, you know along with all the stuff that you put on your that you might decide to spend on your bike to make sure it's reliable because of how the age of it that's always different depending on the person's bike but you know your bike needs to be reliable for five or six days of riding um and and the same you don't want to like i've just said you know the, you, you don't want to crash out unnecessarily we can all crash out through our own mistake but if the mistake is just because you know the that could have been saved by the suspension which a lot of the time those unforeseen hits you'll be surprised if you've never done it before if you get your suspension right those hits that have scared you before won't scare you anymore um and uh so the the suspension um of of course is a massive discussion around tires and mooses um but probably the other one thing that i like i really like and this is definitely not an essential but it's a nice thing to have is a bit better front brake. You know, we, we tend to, the front discs that come standard on enduro bikes are a compromise between performance and vulnerability. And you tend to have less vulnerability on the front disc on rally because you're not so often in that really uh, kind of technical terrain where the disc might get bent. So having a bigger disc on the front, just, again, it, it's that thing when you come into you get lulled into a false sense of security with speed with rally because you get comfortable with going fast quite quickly and then suddenly you have something comes up on you quicker than you are expecting it that little bit more front braking power is a proper a proper um yeah a proper like again can save the crash that you might have otherwise had so it's definitely since i've started running a bigger front disc more powerful front brake it's given me a lot more comfort at speed that i can get rid of that speed when i want to and so normally so normally they're, they're, that jump is from like a 270 mil because there's a couple of japanese bikes still run 260 mil front brakes but i think the you know the european bikes all run 270 mil front discs and that jump you're normally making is to like a 300 mil right 
Yeah. So you need yeah. an adapter. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of brands that make ones where they're already drilled. The, uh, the hanger for the front brake is already drilled for your Ico tripped magnet to screw into as well, which is like a yes. lovely, a lovely feature. It makes life yeah. a little bit easier than drilling it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. After that, you know, it's a, there's a bit of comfort stuff as well. It's nice to have um, really good grips on your handlebars. Because again, you've got to ride seven, eight hours a day, and it doesn't matter how much you, how tough your hands are, they will, they will, your hands will start to hurt. So, nice grips, nice foot pegs, nice seat cover, and those things are all fun to change on your bikes because they're all like, like their personal touches as well. It makes it feel like it's your bike and you've prepped it, and they're not that expensive to make those changes that are just really nice for comfort. They're definitely not essentials, but they're they're very nice personal touches. And, you know, all that stuff is far more important than any, any modern dirt bike. We don't need more horsepower, you know. So I think all, all that stuff's far more important than doing anything bling with your engine personally. Yeah. So um, I think another one that kind of cropped up in my notes here is steering dampers. Um, yeah, okay. So it's another thing that's just become must-have for must must be seen to have a steering damper on your bike for rally um i I would definitely put them personally they're not in the essential especially for any of the the small euro rallies maybe it's a different conversation once we start to go high speed in the desert because again high speed in the desert they can they can save the crash that you would otherwise have um i i'm not a massive expert on setting up steering dampers but in my opinion, most people set them up too stiff. The goal with the steering damper, again, should be to save you when you hit something you don't see. So for the most part, they've turned really, really low. You know, So you don't want to have any impact from it in the technical terrain, in ruts, that sort of thing, or even slow-speed rocks. You know, They're there for when you've got a high-speed sandy section with a rock hidden in the sand that you couldn't do anything about with your riding skill just unlucky that there was a stone hidden in that sand and you were doing 60 mile an hour you know that that and that's what it should save so you know i i was taught again by cyril and alfie cox that the way to set your steering damper up was so that on the stand you can't feel it at all you know and so he used to go turn it until you could just feel it if the bike was on the center stand and then go back two clicks from that Mm -hmm. you know that that was what I was kind of taught, but again, I'm not a massive expert on those, but yeah, I don't think it's a essential until you start going to the big desert races. So next on, on that list of like choosing bikes and bikes to, to ride is one of the questions that someone sent in as well is what, what size bike do you actually need to, I suppose this, this changes a little bit depending on what type of rally you're doing, but what size bike do you need? Um, you, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of happened now with rally where 450s like become the size, you, you know, um, and, and, and it's become the size for a very good reason. It is bang in the middle of a great compromise between something that's easy to ride, got enough power to go fast when it is fast, um, relatively stable. You know, we're not in and out of the trees so much as you are in enduro where you know, maybe a smaller bike's better. So it's kind of become the the median correct size for rally for good reasons you know it, it's it's sort of where the sport's at i guess and where the 
the level the bikes are at. But again, I just go back to it doesn't really matter that much. You can definitely go and have fun on a rally on every size bike. You know, you, you, you've done a few on 254 strokes. There's plenty of people out there. I know guys that have finished Dakar on 254 strokes, WR 250s, and multiple years in a row on the same WR 250. Um, and, you know, had a really good fun doing it as well. Um, I, I know early days I did a bunch of rallies on 252 strokes. Awesome. So much fun on a 252 stroke. A little bit wild, and a little bit loose. <laughs> guys, guys, guys have done Dakar on, you know, mm-hmm. um, on 500 two strokes back in the day as well. Like it, 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 it doesn't really matter. Someone it's did finish some... Dakar on a 125 as well by some yeah, miracle yeah. and 15 piston yeah. changes later. <laughs> One, two, five, two stroke. Exactly. So it's definitely doesn't matter. It's not a reason not to go. If you've got, if you've got a 250 F or a 350 or, you know, two for two stroke, whatever you've got in your garage, you're going to go and do one. Don't let that be the, the stop point for sure. Um, but the easy solution these days is a 454 stroke for sure. It's like they're off the shelf. They're great, aren't they? They're hard to mm-hmm. they're kind of hard to go. But I think it, um, like Lyndon spoke a lot about this in, in our adventure bike podcast. And he was very much along the lines of if you have a bike, just ride it. You'll be fine. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> no, and you know, I always have these little, um, little things in my head to, to go back to doing a one on a two stroke just for the, just for the heck of it as well right. and yeah 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 i mean we we I, I never raced it but years and years and years ago we had this idea to back in back in the day to build a rally bike and we kind of three quarters built it out of a um 350 lc when they were the when they were the thing for those of you that ride road, road road bikes back in the 80s we actually built an off-road bike with a 350 lc engine in it stupid idea well maybe that's a Maybe if uh, anyone from KTM or Husky are, are listening, maybe we could build a 300 two-stroke rally bike. You might eat your own words there. So, um, I mean, I mean, the last, the last kind of sub question around building rally bikes. Like, there's obviously when you go to African rallies, there's a few rules you have to follow because the safety starts yeah. to become a question. Uh, Cy Hewitt, who works for you, a really good friend of mine from my entire life he rode an enduro bike at morocco and there's a few rules he had to jump through such as uh he had to carry three liters of water not so easy on an enduro bike so he actually drilled the swing arm uh put sealed up the holes in it and then put a little fuel a little oil filter oil filler cap on the top and put three liters of water in that but generally for the small rallies you don't have that the one big question that I think everybody asks and nobody has a particularly solid answer to is tires. So we're talking not for, I think for desert races, this is way more set. If you're going to a big African race, you're riding a rally bike, you're using Michelin deserts. If you're not, you're taking a really big risk. So desert mooses, desert tires. When it comes to small rally, it's a much more abstract question. So what's your kind of advice on that front? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean that that you know that's been the sort of set standard on the desert rallies for for quite a while now. And and other people have dabbled with it and been playing with it with other combinations, but it's always a big risk as a privateer. You know that if you stick to that Michelin desert moose, you you it's going well for you. Um and I think I think that's uh yeah, it's a little bit more varied with the other enduros, isn't it? So, and it's a bit more of a minefield, but you have got the option to 
the stages are shorter, the speeds are a little bit lower, so we can go back into an enduro type or motocross, a legal motocross type tyre. Um, like I think the last couple of ones I've run, that Metzler 360, been really good road legal motocross tyre. Because um, those of you that don't know, the thing with desert tyres is they're indestructible. They're very tough. They can deal with a marathon stage where you've got two 600-kilometre days back-to-back and they're not going to fall apart. But as ever with tyres, is the more durable you make a tyre, the less grip you get. So they're actually a bit shit to ride on. And, in fact, if it rains in the desert, they are totally terrifying and almost unrideable. Um, whereas, you know, in the smaller rallies, there's much more higher risk of rain. There's much more higher risk of finding some wet terrain and maybe a bit more technical terrain. So, you know, to have that option to use a, a legal motocross tire or an enduro tire is a great advantage. But you have got that compromise that you're going to need more of them. You know, you're probably going to wear out. So it depends on your budget a little bit. It depends on what your aspirations for the race are. I think you talk about Cy Hewitt. I think the first time he went to Serres, he ran maybe one tyre for the whole I think maybe week. two two rears and one front for seven days. Yeah. So he kind of went there with the mindset of, I'm not going to win, but I want to experience this. I want to learn. I want to get better. And I don't need to spend a load of money on it. I'm just going to get a, a good, hard-terrain tyre, and I'm going to run it for as long as I can run it. And that's, a, you know, that's an awesome mindset as well. Whereas if your mindset is... Maybe, you know, I think I can win a stage. I want to run in the top five. Um, you know, you're going to probably put an enduro tire on it and, throw, and it's going to be destroyed at the end of the day and you're going to put a new tire on every day. Mm. So, you, you know, that, that, that's the real compromise with tires is grip and wear. Uh, in, every, in every aspect, whether we're talking adventure motorcycling, you know, we get it in adventure motorcycling all the time, don't they? How long is my tire going to last? I love a hide now because it lasts a really long time. You know, tires that last a long time don't grip. You know, across every manufacturer, of course, there's little bits of variance in this. But as a basic principle, if you want more grip, you need a softer tire. It'll wear out quicker. So that that's your that's your balance. So I think um, one of the things that rallies taught me, coming from like an enduro background, we ride in mud, and even when it's dry, we always still run enduro tires. Like they're road legal. You need them for the yep. racing we're doing. And when I went to rallies. The first thing I, I kind of learned after the first one I did was that enduro tires are crap when it's hard. Like when it's hard pack and rocky, yeah. like get rid of an enduro yeah, tire. Exactly. Yeah. And that was a really big difference to me was that going to that kind of intermediate or hard pack motocross tire, a road legal one. So you touched on using the MC360 hard. I think I've used the Metza MC5 in the past. Those gave yeah. a much better level of grip and more importantly i think the thing that surprised me was how consistent the breakaway of the tire is on a good hard pack tire do you know an enduro tire is grippy till it's not grippy and then it slides crazy scary it's really hard to judge when you go to a motocross tire the the consistency of the breakaway was the biggest difference so when it did slide that, it wasn't scary yeah but that information's out there pretty good isn't it because you know you, for example you talk about the metzler 360 tire um, you know they've got their two their two uh, versions of that tire, uh, hard terrain and the medium terrain. And then if you start talking, uh, you know British conditions, you don't want to run that tire. You want to run their six days tire because mm -hmm. that's the one that's designed. But all that's on the website. You know you can definitely you can definitely go onto any of the tire manufacturers' website and they've got their tire chart of 
hard terrain. And but but you're right. When you come from the UK, our default is always to put a mud tire on because inevitably, if it's not muddy, it's only for three corners and then it's muddy again. Whereas yeah, well it's true. Once we go to rally, it's the balance is definitely the other way around. You know, we've seen it in Sarah's every year we've been. There has been some muddy sections and some muddy stages, but over the average of the day, you're going to ride on hard terrain for the most part and a good you know good hard terrain tire on those slippery skatey fire roads is uh, uh you know good tires are a revelation aren't they there is every bit as much a, i think not to underestimate that for people that are new to off-road racing or even off-road riding you know when you tend to be a trail rider or a fun rider you wear you ride your tire until there's nothing left of it but uh, a good tire with a sharp edge on it is is dramatic and for improving your riding it's really important to ride on good tires because you don't learn the parameters of your own skill when you're sliding around all the time just because the tires worn out and rubbish and you don't learn that until you put a really good tire on and go wow i can actually lean over in the corner and it's not me that's the problem you know yeah um uh, so I, i think it is important that people understand how big a difference a good new correct tire makes to their riding and, and, you know, I, I haven't had much chance in my life, but, you know, when, when I was young and I was sort of racing like semi-professionally when I went to Japan um, and, uh, you know, I, I, because I had unlimited tire budget there, you know, I was practicing on brand new tires that, that elevated my riding in the six, you know, in the months I was only there three months, but the three months I was there, that elevated my riding massively because every time I went out riding, I was riding on like brand new tires. So I learned, I learned quickly you know how far you can lean a bike over in a corner when you've got new rubber on and if the first time you put a new tire on is when you go to the start line of a race you'll never lean it over because your idea of where a bike can lean over is here because you've been riding around on shit tires mm-hmm. so you know it is important so we'll uh i think you've kind of answered every question i've got there in great detail so we'll run through a quick of the re- uh quick few of the reader questions as well um we put this out on youtube and on instagram stories um so first question is uh thoughts on hellas and hispania rallies well my thoughts are i need to go and do both of them because i i've never ridden either of those two particular events so i actually don't have any experience with those two there you go that's that's so yeah I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you in a year's time. <laughs> so uh, the next one, similar kind of line, best cheapest rally for a beginner based in the UK. Uh, there's something else written on his question there as well. Just a sec. Uh, Spain in brackets. Well, I think the, maybe Hispania rally is a good answer to that. But yeah, yeah. Um, as I'm answering this question now, apparently, <laughs> um, I, I think Ceres is amazing for that as well because. There's a few things about that race that make it quite an easy race to get started in. One is that generally it stays in one place, which makes life a little bit easier. Um, And it's cheap. It's 750 euros for a week's riding. You know, that's as cheap as doing an enduro. You're just doing a week of it. Yep. And there's a a bunch of um, lesser known rallies in Spain and Portugal as well. We did one years ago, didn't we? Just like a regional um, regional one. Yeah. Wild. So they're, they're kind of, you know, yeah, it was a bit wild, but they're kind, you know, they're kind of accessible. And and obviously the other thing is there is the UK trail bike rallies as well, fantastic. Which you know, if, if you're new to, yeah, if you're new to competition, absolutely fantastic. They're super fun. They're super friendly, easy, accessible. 
and I, and I think they're a great way into the sport. You know, I've talked a lot about going and racing hare and hounds, but if you do a hare and hounds as your very first off-road race, and it, and the weather's bad, it can actually demoralise you and make you not want to race. So there's a way into having never done any any off-road racing. I think they're they're fantastic. Um, but for actually preparing yourself, I still believe the hare and hounds are better because they they've got that intensity, um, and you've got you know you've got all the things about being passed and stuff like that, which can, becomes really important once you start going rally racing that you're comfortable with someone faster coming past you. Mm, yes, <laughs> at some point, some so, some godlike human will come past you, no matter how good you are, and uh, make yeah, you feel very human. <laughs> So uh, I think we've answered most of the questions. Um, one person... Can, can, I th- can I throw one thing in there? If people, mm-hmm. You know, because it's a bit of a secret sport. Those people that have never t- been into, have never had a go, the, the, the place to find out where all these events are is to go onto enduronews.com events page because they list all the events there. So yeah. I think that's a, how to find out. Fantastic website that was designed in the 90s and is still there. <laughs> Yeah, horrible website, but they do list all the events. It's fantastic. So at least you can yeah. find out what's on. Yeah. So um, you kind of touched on it a little bit already. Uh, there's two people have asked a very similar question. The first one is, how does a person go from road riding to rallies? I've been off road and I feel crap at it. And the next one is, how do you get into it with no real experience racing? Is that a necessity? Um. Well, like, like I said, it's not a necessity. Um, I, I think if yeah, if you're a road rider and you've never done any off road, um, of course it, it's it's um, you know it's easy to just like again just turn up at one of these trail bike rallies and have a go, or find your local TRF and get in touch with some people that trail ride and have a go. And of course it's easy to come and see us at the off road school and get your first steps that way. And the nice thing about doing that is hopefully um, you know you can learn some basics in a kind of safe way before you get yourself into trouble um but yeah back to the the racing side uh i think the the trail bike rallies in the uk are a great first step um and you know that's just back to that thing of it's something you can do reasonably on your doorstep reasonably cheap and easy to rather than your first one being to to go to the other side of europe and spend thousands of uh thousands of pounds you know straight up but it'll definitely like just break that um break that that ice and you know if the goal is over here it's a really nice easy stepping stone to that first step really and cheap you know cheap you can turn up on a enduro bike you can turn up on an adventure bike you can turn up on anything and pay your you know pay your what they're all a little bit varied but let's say 50 50 to 100 uh pounds for a days riding you get you get to legally ride in a forest that you can't normally go and ride in someone's laid all the track out um you know it's totally legal and totally accessible there's a burger van there and a st john's ambulance there and all that stuff's kind of taken care of so you know if you have never done that go and do one for sure so uh, the last question is one about tires now i think generally we've answered most of the stuff about tires but what uh, a thing that I think a lot of people coming from adventure bike world and trail riding world don't know much about is mooses. Now, how do you feel about like tubes versus mooses when it comes to rallies and what should people be doing and not doing? 
uh, you, you know, Mooses has been a like a massive game changer for the sport. Really, I, I think Mooses are fantastic because you have to you have to you know if you already know how to change tires, you have to change the way you change tires and learn some new techniques. If you learn them right from the start, there's definitely technique to changing mooses and you have to learn it but once you've learned it then they're not massively difficult to change in fact you know we've seen against the clock they're quicker than a tube once you know how to do them um but they 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 take away a bunch of stuff you know you're, you're never getting a puncher again so you don't have to carry you don't have to carry uh tire levers pumps co2 bottles tubes all that with you on the bike all that's gone so it's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to have either in your on your body or on your bike and uh, you know that your day's riding is, is trouble-free. They're, they're, they're fantastic. Um, obviously, they're not – not obviously. That's why you've asked the question. They're not there in adventure bike world yet because what mooses don't yet deal with is high speed or high temperatures. So you can't ride – you can ride them on the road, but you can't ride them on the road at high speed for a long time. So hence, they're not suitable for adventure bikes yet or road bikes yet but in you know in off-road they're fantastic and that that difference between the high speed and the high temperature is the difference between if you're if you're trail riding here in the uk you can probably get a year out of a moose they're expensive so you can probably get a whole year out of a moose of just fun riding in the uk once you start going racing or you go to rally where the speeds are higher and the temperatures are higher the moose doesn't last so that's when it starts to get expensive and when the moose does break down because of high speed, it, generate, it generates heat in the moose, and it's the heat that kills the moose. Um, and once they do break down, they break down very quickly and very dramatically. So when a moose does go, especially if it's at speed when it gives up, you're in for an entertaining ride. Well, we've seen it in Dakar a little bit, especially this year where for some reason mooses grenaded themselves quite a lot. There was that footage of Andrew Short riding through the sand dunes on just a rim because the tyre that was on that wheel was no more once the moose gave way. I think the same happened to Mick Exton's this year and it put him out of the race. When his tyre went, it took out his brake caliper and his airbox, annihilated the whole yeah. back end of his bike. But... I have had some very traumatic times and I remember watching you crash in a corner because your tire came <laughs> off the rim with a back and loose. Yeah, that was my own fault though. That moose is like 18 months old. So, you know, when you're tight and you're practicing, <laughs> you end up running old gear. Um, I think as kind of a golden rule though, it's quite interesting. How long a moose lasts definitely is proportional to how fast you ride. So again, yeah. like uh, like Cy Hewitt, he ran the whole of Ceres, I believe, on one set of mooses twice not the same set, two sets, two years. So there's definitely a proportion there as a golden rule. I think probably about a thousand Ks is the limit for a moose with someone quick on it. You know, they generally seem to start to give up very quickly around that. Oh, point. And, and, and that's why whenever there's a marathon stage on Dakar, I like it's definitely very nerve wracking on the second day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, normally on Dakar, we're changing the rear moose, the rear moose every day and the front every other day. Um, and uh, for sure, factory guys are changing front and rear every day. And and when it, you know, those guys are always, you see it every year, they're always having to back off on both days of the marathon day to get a moose through. And, and even like, you know, for our level at sort of mid-packy, privateery kind of level, like you're really nervous on the second day um, of your moose. You know, you're, you're having to ride, not being aggressive 
you know, being smooth, coming out of corners, um, you know, any of those places where you're putting pressure on the tire and the moose, you're kind of trying to be gentle, really build your speed more progressively. And mm. uh, yeah, you have, you have to ride around it. No question. Yeah. Whereas if you're riding enduros or trail riding here in the UK, it's like they'll last months. But I think even for a race like uh, Serres or Hellas, where they're kind of that six days of long riding level, you can quite realistically just budget two sets of mooses will do the whole race. I think that's probably not unrealistic, yeah. is it? Okay. Uh, yeah. So we're at the hour and 40 mark limit. You're, you've set a new record oh. for uh, talking the most on a podcast. <laughs> oh, shit. Hey, just, no, it's been fantastic. In the world, but I've got talking shit down. <laughs> no, it's been fantastic. You've uh, had some great answers to the questions. Um, to finish off, uh, we always do a little bit where... We give you the the expert in the situation an opportunity to kind of tell the people watching what you've got going on, what you've not got going on. So yeah, run us down. Oh, yeah, well, obviously motorcycle riding right at the moment's uh, pretty stalled. Um, but like like I think like everyone, we're we're sitting here dreaming of what the next adventures can be. Um, you know, we're more than anything excited for when we can get the off road school going again. Um, it's, it's still one of the favorite things that I do week in, week out. Love, uh, love sharing the knowledge, love, um, you know, watching other people come into off-road with nerves and, uh, and worries and go away, like smiling and excited. Like that's the thing I'm still the most passionate about in the whole sport, um, and in motorcycling generally. So yeah, I can't wait for that to get going again. Um, we, those of you that don't know our whole program, we have a couple of big adventures, uh, as well that we do kind of off the back of the off-road school. So, um, once people have been through a few levels, they start getting excited about where they can go and what they can do next. So we have, uh, some big trips that we've had to postpone this year, but it will be both happening next year. Savannah way, we ride right the way across Australia, 21 day adventure ride. And, and, uh, and then we go to Iceland for eight days. So that's going to be like a really big packed year next year um hopefully doing some more cool stuff with break magazine once we get everything going and we've got some we've got some kind of pretty exciting plans there i think don't know if i'm allowed to talk about any of them but we'll 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 uh yeah keep, we'll keep them under wraps but there's definitely going to be some good stuff coming there which is really fun um yeah and in the meantime like everybody i think the bicycles become, become the uh the playground at the moment which is definitely for me, I'd rather be riding motorbikes, but I do still love riding the bicycles as well. And I think they're a great way to, to kind of keep improving your skills and keep, you know, it helps with all of that, that stuff that we love to be good at on motorbikes, being accurate with your, your wheel placement and your fitness and all that. So totally. yeah, loads of that go. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. If you're new to the podcast and this is your first time watching it, this is something that we do three weeks out of four in a month. We generally have a Q&A on the other week. It comes out on a Thursday night and it's for our Patreon subscribers. So Patreon is like a subscription system. We have two levels, one which is like a thanks for making your great videos and one that uh, includes this podcast and a few other bonuses. If you're interested in that, head to our website, which is break-magazine.com or the link in the description of this video and you can find a link to our Patreon page. Um, yeah, it's 10 US dollars a month. It's a strange number, but yeah, it works out about seven pounds normally. So yeah, thank you very much for your time. I hope you've enjoyed this and yeah, I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thanks for uh, your great answers. <laughs>